Hello everyone, this is Belinda Carr. Welcome back to the Movers and Breakers podcast, where we dive into the world of construction and explore the stories of people and companies who are shaping the future of our industry. From the latest innovations to the challenges and triumphs of everyday professionals, we bring you the inside scoop of what's happening in construction. Today, I'm speaking with Matteo Pietrobelli, CTO of Oceanics. Thanks for joining us, Matteo. Thank you so much for having me. So you have a very, very interesting background. We connected through LinkedIn a couple of months ago. Um, but you have worked at several, several companies in the States and abroad. And before it's all led you to this job that you have right now at Oceanics, where you're building the future city. It's a floating city and it's right off the coast of um, Korea. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, in the city of Busan. Before we dive into that, I would love to talk about your journey to this point, because I think it's very inspirational, it's very diverse, and we could learn a lot from your uh, experience. Yeah, I, I don't know about how much about learning, uh, but you know, I'm happy to share the, the, my, yeah. my, my journey. I, I started like, a, I would say every civil engineer or person that works in our industry would start after my, my degree in uh, structural engineering from Rome. Um, I basically was uh, was sent in, uh, in China to work on a research project. It was actually part of my uh, graduation thesis. Um, and I spent there almost uh, uh, almost a full year over there and working on a research project, doing some uh, testing on uh, on a lab uh, for uh, peers in earthquake environments. And uh, after that, I graduated and uh, I found a job that uh, sent me in, in Africa, North Africa, in Argentina, worked there for, uh, um, for, for a period. Then work, started to work for a steel fabricator, one of the, actually the best steel fabricators in the world, which is uh, um, Italian. Uh, the company um, had me working on different projects in, uh, in Italy, Europe, so to say. So I, was, I worked in uh, between uh, Italy and Switzerland and uh, and then they sent me to the United States to work on uh, in New York on the Hudson Yards project. And then, um, did you have any idea early on in, when when you were in college that you would be working in what five continents in the first couple of years after graduating? Uh, I didn't know, but uh, honestly, that's um, that was a little bit the I would say what I hoped for because I was looking for some some challenges. Uh, it's not something that I'm not used to because with my with my family we, we moved a lot uh, during my youth, so it's not something that uh, I'm I'm not used to. And actually, I I, I look for it. You felt it too. Say, yeah, actually, I enjoy it very much. Um, but um, it also was a certain way um, um, a fruit or an effect of the historical period in you know a post uh, 2008 uh, economic crisis. Because I graduated, it was uh, 2013, and economically, I would say, in-house, in the country, in Italy, there was not a lot of, uh, I would say, uh, stimulating jobs, so to say. Okay. And so it was almost uh, a given that you would be sent out, right? And that's how it happened. I mean, for me, it was totally fine, actually. enjoyed it very much. But it turned out to be a good thing for you. I mean, not that economics, the, the 2008 no, crash was awful, but... Yeah. The experience you got out of that, working in different countries, interacting with different cultures, understanding how different structural systems are in China versus Africa versus Europe versus the States, that that gives you a really well-rounded 
um, perspective on uh, construction. No, it does. I mean, it helps a lot. It provides, like, a, I would say, a more of a, of a overview and a, of a, of a, it also you know, opens opens definitely your mind if you're open to it, so to say, as well, because it can, you know, it can it can, it can work both ways. That's true. But um, but yeah, no, it, it worked out pretty well. Um, and uh, he actually helped, it helped me propel for you know I think a career that um so far has been uh, been interesting, has been stimulating, has been uh, challenging, but it's been uh, satisfying, which I think I guess at the end of the day that's what is important, right? Yeah, so it actually took you to Hyperloop for a couple of years in California too, right? Yeah, I wasn't in California, I was in New York, and um, uh, but yes, yes, I, I I worked for Hyperloop as a as a consultant. Um, I worked on a couple of projects in uh, in in New York from the uh, uh, Delta Terminal in LaGuardia to the Long Island Railroad uh, third track uh, renovation project. Uh, the Tappan Zee Bridge, the new one, which is called the Governor, the Governor Cuomo Bridge. Uh, it's the new Cable State Bridge. I work on the structural health monitoring systems for, for that bridge. Um, then I ended up working with uh, other companies. I ended up uh, uh, opening and managing the New York office of an engineering firm uh, from, uh, from Italy, and then uh, working on an engineering firm, a very established engineering firm here in New York, uh, specializing in high-rise. Um, and um, then eventually I, I joined the Oceanics. So what, what was the motivator that um, led you from a, a career in building bridges, building and designing bridges and skyscrapers to this really forward-thinking, futuristic city? Was there something inside you that was that felt, you felt kind of you needed a change? Uh, well, I mean, look, what happened is that working with Hyperloop, which, uh, you know, it's, um, it's a project that still ongoing, so to say. So, um, it required, uh, um, an inclusion or I would say, um, bringing together a lot of different, uh, specialists. And that was like an unusual project, right? Yeah. It is, uh, based on, uh, on maglev, but then it's in a tube, right? A tube that has, uh, uh, the air sucked out of it, which means, you know, you are in a, in an environment with less friction, etc. So, and that goes with that all of the different complications that, that, you know, you can imagine go into a project like that. Right. And, uh, that's when I started to, to be exposed to, uh, to the world of, of, of systems, so to say, right. Of how to approach uh, a project, not from like a, a project perspective, which is something that I think we are more used to from a in the in the civil engineering world but uh, larger but from, than just the project yeah but from a system perspective right we ended up realizing that uh, there were people that never really worked with each other in uh, coming from the uh, aerospace industry or coming from the uh, avionics or aeronautics industry especially considering the aerodynamics of the capsules uh the life support systems uh, in case of a of an outage in the in the in the tube or um, um uh, emergency system things that um, are very much foreign to, let's say, the, a normal, I would say, more standard uh, civil engineering project. And that really, I would say, gave me a, a little bit of a different perspective of how, you know, if you want to do something that is a little, a little bit new, you have to bring in... Uh, diverse, uh, people from diverse, diverse backgrounds. Yeah, right. And if you need to bring people from diverse backgrounds, you need to find a way to actually orchestrate all of them in order to, you know, 
um, achieve what needs to be achieved from a, a final product perspective, right? And um, and that's uh, that's what I would say propelled me to think about a little bit differently from uh, from uh, the, the more established again yeah. uh, engineering projects, right? And so that's when I got exposed actually on the 3D printing for concrete. That was when I was in Hyperloop. Uh, at the time, I was uh, there were only two to three companies worldwide. Uh, now really an established, uh, I would say, market. Not that it's established now, but now it's, it's really booming. It's it uh, crazy how fast that market has grown in the last three years. It's yeah. insane. Because I was yeah. I was looking into it, I made a video on the introduction to 3D concrete printing back in 2018. And there was such limited information back then. That was not even, that was five years ago. Yeah, no, no, no it's okay. So it, it was a um, uh, very unusual time that gave us the opportunity to experiment a lot. And that's, I think I would say that through that experimentation, um, a lot of ideas spun off of it, yeah. you know? And, uh, and that's, that's basically how eventually I, um, uh, ended up thinking about other types of applications. And that's, uh, when I was introduced, I guess, to oceanics. Yeah. Yeah. So let's dive into oceanics. It's a floating city proposal. Um, the first time I went to the website, looked into it, it seemed pretty outlandish to me. It was, and I'm sure people who come across it will say, wow, this is just as crazy as living on Mars. Like, what's the point of it? We have so much land in, on the Earth. Why do we need a floating city? But there is a genuine need for it in the near future. Well, yeah. I mean, the thing is this, right? The, the website portrays very well, uh, I would say, a sort of a, a extemporaneous view of a floating city that can be in the ocean, in the sense that it's floating, right? So, but the, the, the real question comes to the point of how far into the ocean, right? And uh, that's that's where the the answer that I think everybody is expecting is, we're not, Oceanics is not trying to build a, a, a community. A little island in the middle of exactly, nowhere. Exactly, in the middle of nowhere, right? Um, the, the overall design is driven by being very close to uh, to the coast. When I say close, I'm talking about uh, literally less than 50 meters, right? So it, it's really it's really a plug-in to existing coastal cities. And the idea is was was born because of uh, trying to find a solution that is at, at the at the at the integration between uh, I would say three to four problems or major problems that the world is facing. One of them is, uh, you know, clearly the seawater level rising. It's uh, something we're all aware of it. We might not see it, uh, but in other countries like Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, and in Southeast Asia in general, it's been happening. Uh, it's been happening in Africa as well, and you've seen it. And there are um, entire communities that have been uh, pushed. Displaced. And displaced, right? So it's, um, it's an existing problem, and it's a problem that if nothing changes, we end up facing as well in, uh, I would say, in, in the western side of the world, where I'm residing in the sense. You know? So, um, it's one of those like problem. out of sight, out of mind things. People don't, like yes. we hear, don't see it, so they think the problem doesn't exist. Exactly, right? Then you have to consider the all of the secondary effects, uh, which I call them secondary because they are an effect of a, of, a pre of a previous cause, right? Which is climate refugees. I mean, where are we at going to put all of these refugees? And uh, 
if we start to consider that certain areas of the United States based on on certain uh, um, scenarios and models might end up being in uh, what they call the wet bulb areas, where you're going to have uh, high humidity levels with the excruciating hot temperatures, those are not livable environments. And no livable environments means that you're going to actually displace other people as well. Entire communities, entire cities, probably about millions of people. And so the question is, yeah, they, there are areas for sure in the Midwest. There are areas for sure in the more rural areas to build new communities. And those might end up, say, choices for somebody. But for somebody else, um, coastal cities might end up being uh, the better option because at the end of the day, uh, coastal cities represent, um, uh, I would say, more or less 80% of the wealthiest city in the world. Right? Yeah. We have, we consider... Uh, New York, are, Houston, LA. Right? Yeah. And that's because ports are there, commerce yeah. is there. And from commerce, there is wealth. And from wealth, there is investments, right? And so growth. And so it, it becomes appealing to actually move here. In, in addition to that, um, coastal cities or bigger cities that are on the coast are continuously expanding because there are uh, new, uh, uh, let's say, immigrants, myself included, for example, I came to New York, but uh, immigrants not necessarily from out, uh, other countries, but also within the same country. There are a lot of uh, Americans that come to New York and they're not New York, right? So the city keeps expanding. Um, the fact that there is a, a economically viable, um, it, of course, it's appealing to, uh, to people. And uh, so where you're going to actually allocate certain resources or I would say certain real estate assets. And if you have a seawater level rising, you have overpopulation, you have climate refugees. In addition to that, you also have ports that are now are reaching the life expectancy of when they were when, when they were built. And some of them, because of the way vessels are growing in terms of sizes or because of uh, other uh, policies that might not end up being renovated, they're going to be dismissed. And this is the case, for example, what is happening in Busan. Busan, the North Port is one of the biggest ones, is one of the busiest ones, but soon it's going to be, actually, is already going through what we, they call uh, a redevelopment program, where the whole waterfront that used to be completely industrial um, is going to actually be residential and commercial, an entire new neighborhood. But and cruise ships, right? That's the only one port exactly. that they would have. That's the only one that would be left. So that means that you have an entire pond of water, I would say, which is a, a big blue field of water, of, uh, of potential real estate, of prime real estate, that can actually be used and developed. And Busan is not the only city that has that, uh, I would say, opportunity. And so that's how Oceanics was born. Oceanics was born to be exactly at the, uh, in between all of the, the different problems and trying to find a solution that would actually accommodate or, or be able to actually solve uh, these problems from a certain perspective. So I grew up in Dubai. We had this conversation before. And um, Dubai built the Palm Islands and the World Islands by dumping sand into the Arabian Sea, Persian Gulf, and then building up land until it was fairly stable. And then they started like um, consolidating the, the, the foundations and then building houses and hotels and all that on it. Is your project in Busan similar to the, to the way they built the, the palm in the world? No. So Busan, I would say Oceanics, um, is actually a solution to also this type of approach, right? Um, they call it land reclamation, which means that you gain sand from somewhere. You either um, uh, dredge it from the, from, the, 
from the from the seabed or you actually get it from somewhere else and then you dump it and in dumping it you slowly create layers over layer and then basically create new land first of all it takes a lot of time because as to settle um the effort is not really optimized in the sense that of course it's sand so some particles may end up going in other areas right or they're not really specifically sedimenting where they need to be um it's really costly and costly not from a cost perspective specifically or exclusively but it's very costly from um ecological point yes, yeah exactly you're, you're destroying entire ecosystems by adding land and so um what we what we wanted to do is finding a solution that was not driven by that but at the same time was actually able to accommodate uh, building on top of water right and so what we did is we had a floating platform Floating platform that is able to accommodate all of the different subsistence within uh, the platform and is strong enough and stable enough and comfortable enough uh, to then be uh, able to accommodate a real estate on top of it. That's basically the, our our solution. What is the what is this floating platform made of? Because it has to support entire buildings, multi-story buildings. Yeah. How? What sort of material are you all using? We're, we're actually using of course concrete i mean we ended up going with the um the closest solution that uh, it's currently available for the size of the platform that we're actually developing uh i just want to explain it because in in busan the project right now the size of a platform is around uh, uh two hectares we took about 4.9 acres right and that's uh it's a let's say a, a size of a new city block so it's it's massive. It's really yeah. big, and therefore um, the the best option in terms of life cycle perspective, which means not just the design and the construction, but also the operation, the maintenance, the durability, etc. The the best option in terms of materiality with current materials available, it's to go with reinforced concrete. So is it just the shape of the the island, the man-made island itself, that makes it buoyant? Is it anchored to the seabed but allows for a little bit of movement? Yeah, how how much of a bit is it really a floating city? No, it's 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 basically as you said it right. It's a floating castle, uh, two stories inside. It's around ten meters deep, so almost thirty feet. Um, we have uh, inside of the castle, of course, uh, in the same way a vessel works. It's it's floating because of buoyancy, um, it, so it's able to actually go up and down to so accommodate tides and any type of the other type of the, uh, um, uh, let's say uh, movement. That's yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah, But it's not moving naturally because it's anchored by what we call dolphins. They're basically piles that go to the ground. They're driven or uh, or or um, uh, let's say drilled. And the piles are able to withstand the lateral movements of the platform. Okay. I see. And, and the islands themselves are, when I was going through your website, it seemed like they, you're trying to build a self-sustaining city. You all yeah. have incorporated that's really interesting ideas, net zero energy, freshwater autonomy, zero waste systems, habitat regeneration, plant-based food, and shared mobility. And even though these floating cities are going to be, what you said, 50 meters from the mainland, they are meant to function on their own if needed. That is correct. So, you know, this is the other um, perspective, which is very important for us, is that uh, the um, 
uh, construction industry represents overall around 40%, 40%. of the brand, the of the total global emission. Um, that means that we clearly need to do something about it, right? Unfortunately, <clears throat> uh, there are certain ways that are um, can be influenced by the private industry, by policies, or in general by building better and building more sustainable. And uh, and that's how we wanted to tackle it. So we decided to basically use and uh, um, raise the bar from an ESG perspective. And and the only way to do it was to actually tackle what are the typical systems of uh, a real estate project. And there for water systems, waste systems, uh, energy systems. And then because uh, of, um, of the fact that we are approaching the design from a circular economy perspective, we also integrated the food system and the mobility system and the community, right? So the overall design works in a way where we're able to be almost completely independent from the mainland. We, of course, have um, redundancy systems built in that allow us to basically guarantee uh, functionality and, op and operation. It's right, almost like a grid-tied system. In case something yeah, fails, you can that still... That is correct. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Water and, and, and energy are uh, the key, right? Which guarantees uh, through energy, you also guarantee data. So uh, you're able to basically have a completely, um, so let's say, um, uh, innovative city that still works, even in case of some of the um, autonomous systems or you know, uh, some of the more ecological systems might end up not having some problems or having to be maintained or to be replaced. But in general, we don't rely on that. We have, we're able, based on geographies and based on the way we tailor the system, we're able to actually gather energy from uh, sun and wind. Um, we are able to store it. We're able to resell it to the grid. Uh, water is the same. We're able to actually capture the water, in this case, from uh, from rain because of the location in Busan and the the rain levels in the last 25 years allow us to actually consider rain to be a viable option. The rain, of course, is stored, it's clean, it's polished, and it gets to a drinkable level uh, that is uh, equal to the drinkable level from the faucets right now uh, in, in Busan, where people drink. Um, then, depending on the type of water and the way it's used, black water and the green water, we can actually recycle it and uh, clean it again that and be used for, let's say, uh, cleaning, washing, and the black water can be used for uh, the landscaping, for irrigation, or for the hydroponic and the hydroponic system. So that is the way is a closed loop. There really, there is no waste. Um, again, in case uh, um, there is a more consumption of water than necessary, we actually go to the aqueduct. So uh, water is connected as a redundancy to the to the platforms. Um, and waste is the same way. Waste is uh, dried um, independently of the type of waste. So, of course, we have uh, uh, sanitary waste, we have uh, organic, we have uh, um, uh, recyclable as well. And uh, we have different subsystems in the in the hall that allow us to treat each one of them independently. And uh, they then are disposed, uh, depending on, the, on which one we're talking about, but they're disposed in a way that it's ecological and sustainable. For example, for the cardboard and the metal, we have compactors that bring them together and that they go into the mainland where they're going to be treated with the, yeah, exactly. And um, 
So that's that's the way it works. It's, it's really closed loop. Uh, there is a uh, the vessel reliance on the mainland if needed. For, if yeah. needed, of course, of course, that is important because safety and and in general operability, it's uh, it's uh, uh, priority number one. And uh, we are not absolutely not even trying to think about compromise there. Uh, but because the idea it's is still to... it's still a city. It's still part it of Busan. It's it's, it's just an extension of it. Why would it need to be completely cut off? Exactly, and the size of the bridges. We're talking about um, ten to fifteen meters from uh, from uh, from the coast. Yeah. From the uh, the piers of the port. So it's it's a, a plug-in. It's literally a, a plug-in into the city, and is a is a sort of a. It needs to be represented as a transition between the, um, the land and the water, but no transition is perceivable. It's basically just an enablement. Going through your website, those, like we said earlier, those renderings can be a little bit misleading because when I talked to you and saw some of the other renderings, I realized the idea that you all have is very different. It's like you ex explained, it's like a plug and play. It's an extension of the city. It's not a floating country in the middle of nowhere. But but I wanted to talk to you about the idea of systems integration. Yeah. For a project as complex as this, you can't just have people from the construction industries. This is not just about architects and engineers. Um, it it's pulling people in from naval engineering, from from the agriculture industry. When you talk about hydroponics, there are. It's a very diverse. Um, I, I don't know the the even though oceanics is such a small startup, y'all have brought in a very diverse skill set in order to figure this out. Yeah, look, I was also lucky because uh, um, one of my previous startups was into aeroponic and hydroponic systems for vertical farming in, you know, control environment agriculture. So I, I had that level of uh, uh, exposure that you know, gave, gave me, or allow me at least to uh, be smart about it, so to say, right? But the, as you said, it's correct in the sense that we also had to include into the development um, of the of the first uh, of the first prototype a series of skill sets that are very diverse. People that come from the offshore industry, people that come from uh, the submarine industries, people that come from uh, uh, the cruise lines and the let's say more of the naval architecture, and the, um, and we have people coming from the control agriculture environment. Then we have uh, water experts. We had uh, uh, energy renewable um, systems experts, and so bringing them all together, and then tailoring these specific systems to be uh, used on a real estate project. And so that, with specific uh, requirements and philosophies of trying to really approach it from a circular perspective, not not exclusively from a sustainability point of view, but really from a circular perspective. By taking into consideration the proximity to the transportation, for example, which is very important because you end up having buildings that are completely empty and uh, people to go to the office may consume so much gallons of, of, of gas every day. Uh, that is not really sustainable, right? So uh, the idea was, and the same goes also from what goes into the buildings and what, what comes out of the buildings, such as uh, the footage treat, the packaging, uh, the way the packaging is disposed of, right? So all of that came into the design, and that's why um, we really are we, we really are proud to say that for us is it was really a, a circular economy and ecological effort to really bring those systems together and also to work from a circular perspective. Yeah, I've come across 
ideas like this in the past. I mean, we being an architecture school, we, we talk about ideas like this, the self-sustaining city that incorporates all these things. But this is probably the first project in the world that's, that actually turned those ideas into reality. Well, you know, to, to talk about it from that perspective, I totally see also why, right? And we have the opportunity to start with a blank slate. Yeah. We have it because we don't rely on uh, what they are, let's say, the legacy systems. If you go on a city like New York, you have legacy systems. You have aqueduct, you have the grid, right? And those are the systems that you rely on. You have to extend it, you have to plug it and, uh, um, into the new buildings once you actually start to build them and tailoring them based on the new demand that is inside of the building or, or, or given from the building. But um, in our case, yes, we can, of course, hook into the, into the redundancy, but those are redundancy systems. The way we design them are designed them to actually be completely self-sufficient. And we have the opportunity because we are building land on water, which means that we had to basically develop it from a, a self-sustaining system point of view. Right, and not really rely exclusively, at least, on on the legacy system. How so, close? How close are you all to to construction? I know we talked about it as though it's already started, but it hasn't started yet. You're still the yeah. conceptual stage is done, schematic yes. design's done. Design? Yeah. Are you all in the design development stage? So you know, this is a, the 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 fact that this is so new, and that is the really the first one. That is going to to be to be done is a, the first uh, we call it a prototype, which is going to be sort of, sort of a sandbox of uh, also testing and having the system working. Um, the process that we establish with the city of Busan, because you have uh, uh, the regulatory approval process that is very important, is over three phase. We just concluded phase one, but so phase one of approval actually went through and it was a green light. We are starting phase two and phase three, and we're actually starting a uh, simultaneously, so they're going to move parallelly in the in 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 our timeline in our, in the, in our schedule, and uh, the idea is to start construction by the third or fourth quarter of 2024. That's pretty exciting. That's pretty exciting, and it's not. This is not just fancy renderings. That's what I wanted to t- bring you on the podcast to talk about this because it's you all have done testing on the foundations on the systems. You all are. And I know that once you get out into the real, into the field and start your um, building this, you will face challenges. Obviously, like every construction site does, and things might fail. You might have to change your plans and develop a different system. But you all have thought this through very, very logically. This is not just some fancy idea and a fancy rendering. You all are doing your best to turn this into reality. Yeah, and look, I think what we can do, and we're lucky, is that we can learn from. Um, Previous experiences, you know, uh, cable state bridges or suspended suspension bridges went through um, extensive uh, uh, trial and error, but they were built nonetheless because they were driven by need. Um, same thing was for high rise. I mean, high rise uh, was not a thing until uh, uh, really few years ago, a few years, you know, some some decades ago. But in in a grand scheme of things, it's really just a few years ago yeah. in terms of human developments, and uh, but they ended up doing it right. And of course, it required an innovative point of view, an innovative approach, which was thinking about it from a wind tunnel perspective. I mean, right? Wind tunnel were used into the aeronautic industry, but once you go way high with buildings, you end up in an environment where winds are a driver of performance. And uh, and the same goes for Hercules, right? And so, 
what I'm trying to say is, in a similar way, um, that's that's what we basically have done on on doing our concept design and post schematic design. We're gonna um, go even deeper in doing the design development, but that's uh, that's basically the approach that we use. You all use those like... systems and adapted it to this project. You all may not be designing skyscrapers, but you all have yeah. learned about the technology that is Absolutely. being used in skyscrapers, like the dampeners, and you all have yes. adapted it to this floating city. Yeah, or to give an example, instead of having a, a, a wind tunnel, we have a water tank. I mean, water tank can be used to test the offshore platforms and the uh, um, vessels um, for the longest time. They have uh, smaller uh, prototypes, to, so to say, or, or scale models, and they test vessels, uh, uh, just ships or offshore platforms in different wave environments to understand performance, acceleration, the response uh, uh, of the of the of the of the platform and the vessel to different uh, uh, um, sea environments, so to say, and uh, uh, that's something that can be done as well in our case. Yeah. Right. So. I would say it's it, it's important. That, well, the way I've seen it is, or we have experienced it during the the process, is to really see how existing technologies um, can be tailored or reused to actually solve a need or to solve a problem, such as our problem. So the big question is, who's funding this? Because this is an experimental project, never been done before. Lots of risks, obviously. Uh, not saying it's bad or anything. It's just it's a risky investment. How do you all manage to navigate the investment world where there's so much value put into the software side of um, like innovation? So, so something like this that is so forward thinking, but very, very long term. It's a very long term project. How do you find the right investors to back such a project? Well, of course. Uh... You know, there there are other projects out there. Um, you know, there is a, a the case of uh, Neom, right, yes. or uh, the Oxygen, or other um, really big and I would say um, innovative projects, so to say. In our case, the beauty of it is that we we have established a system, a system that can be um, built as a sort of a product, and that and is basically standardized. Our platform is standardized to a certain degree of flexibility, which allow us to really uh, approach them from a sort of a, from a, a sort of a DFMA approach, like a design for manufacturing assembly, and that allow us to really consider um, our 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 offering to be a product in our project, right? So we're productizing what used to be just perceived as a project. the The beauty in this is that it reduces the risk, which uh, um, makes it more appealing to investors. Um, the other thing is we are a startup, and so we rely heavily on investments that come from uh, VCs or other type of funds. And so far we went through seed one and seed two with the with interest from our investors in continuing to evolve and to actually um, give us the opportunity to grow and to uh, build and develop more our offering. And the same is going to happen with Series A. Series A is going to be our, uh, it's actually starting soon, it's going to be our new uh, fundraising around and uh, it's going to allow us to propel again the project and the beauty in all of this is because it's geographically driven we can rely heavily on local partners local partners like uh, real estate developers local partners like uh, construction companies that are believing in the vision they're believing in the idea and they want to be part of it and so it really becomes uh, 
not just an integration of system, by the way, an integration of partners yeah. that believe in the idea and they're able to actually all together invest and and uh, propel uh, the, the solution. So contact is a real buzzword in our industry right now. I've heard so many people talk about construction technology and it, the potential to change our industry and increase productivity. And um, what advice do you have for someone interested in contact? Do you do you really think that it could change the future of construction? I mean, I, I, I of course, I of course, do not have an answer myself for that. But um, I think uh, there is a lot that can be done in the construction industry. Um, I, I think uh, the in general, we're we're seeing a little bit of a shift. Uh, of course, there's a lot of software out there, and it's important to be because the, the digitalization itself allow us to streamline processes and everything else. So it's, uh, it's that important, but um, I'm also realizing, or at least I'm seeing that VCs and uh, and funds and investors in general are realizing that, uh, you know, there is a, there is a saying in, in New York where, you know, hardware is the king in this case, right? Um, they don't say hardware is the king in New York, but they use uh, something is the king. So in this case is hardware is the king. And I think, uh, um, the construction industry is an example of uh, of hardware, right? It's of course propelled by the software, is propelled by processes, is propelled by uh, regulatory uh, um, procedures and policies. But at the end of the day, is uh, hardware. It's a built environment, yeah, right? exactly. So, I and I think there is a lot, really a lot, that uh, can be done. We, we're just seeing the beginning. I mean, Hyperloop is an example, Catera um, was another example, right? And even though some of these companies um, are, are still going or uh, others are went bankrupt, um, are just an example of a need that needs to be filled uh, of an opportunity, I would say, that um, re requires some new visions to be uh, propelled and to be realized. And I think the only way to do it is to actually have uh, engineers and younger engineers or even even older engineers that have visions and that believe in that and they just follow through i completely agree yeah i completely right? agree with the, what you say the reprint industry is an example yeah uh, what we're doing here is an example and i'm you know it wasn't my idea well i'm not a co-founder i'm just i'm helping propelling this because i believe in it uh but the hyperloop is another idea there is a lot that can be done there is a lot going on in the off-site manufacturing in the, uh, you know, fabrication, uh, design for fabrication uh, and manufacturing. There is a lot is going through the computational design and the digital fabrication to actually streamline processes, reducing waste, increasing productivity. Um, I think the real key in all of this is our industry, it's not a software industry in the sense that it requires to develop a workforce that is open to have an understanding of how software works, of having understanding how computational tool, tools work, of an understanding of integration between digital and physical, and in streamlining all of these processes. Really, I think really that is most likely what I, I believe is the next uh, frontier, because that will drive the, the end product. That no matter what type of idea is out there, it will drive the end product. You it explained that so beautifully. That's I mean, yeah, I, I, because I'm, I, we're using it a lot, right? We're using a lot of uh, 
computational tools and uh, digital tools integrated, of course, with the, with the physical product. But um, I think it, it's really about the workforce. Yeah. And if we continue to have a workforce that is used to, um, you know, long due tools or approach um, approaches, we're gonna have we're gonna end up with the same tools with the same results. Sorry, and um, and out there there is a new move. There are new uh, needs as well, and that's why there is a movement, um, and there is a demand for these skills. And so I really the way I see this, I'm myself. In middle of uh, my career, I'm, middle, I'm, I'm relatively young. So <laughs> during my my recent years, I had to reapply myself and uh, learn new tools and get and acquire new skills. I think that's in, that, this is another thing. It's the future belongs to also who's going to be able to be flexible and to really adapt to demand and needs. And so that's probably what the construction industry will be in the future. I think. I, that was excellent, Vice Mateo, and I completely agree with what you're saying. I think we're seeing an opening up of the industry. The biggest takeaway I, for me from Oceanics is systems integration. The idea that, hey, construction is not a bubble. Let's Like with 3D printing, let's bring in material scientists. So let's bring in people from aviation. Let's bring people from the naval industry. That's how we can grow. We're going to have industries that fail, like Kutera or go bankrupt and all that. But we could take those lessons learned and maybe they they had a real, maybe a little unrealistic approach to construction. We Maybe we need to tone it down a little bit, but, but the idea was really strong. The, the integration, the vertical integration, bringing in people from different industries, those ideas didn't fail. You know, and that's what yeah, we need no, to no. take forward. You're totally right. It's, I think it gets to a point where an idea works because it was the right moment at the right time. Right, sorry, the right idea at the right time. And, you know, it's most of it is also related to execution. I think in general, the more we are seeing these trends and these efforts, if they're done, you know, with the, with the ethical approach, right now, like driven by hype, um, I think it's going to add value and it's going to change and drive uh, the overall AEC industry towards, um, uh, I would say, like a new horizon. Yeah. Well, that was that was wonderful speaking with you, Matteo. Thank you so much for explaining how Oceanics works and the intricacies of it. I'm, I'm really excited to see this under construction. And we definitely need to get you back on the podcast once things pick up and once you learn things a little we're, bit more. And looking okay. forward to uh, it. I am myself excited as well to see how this thing is going to evolve and develop. Uh, so thank you for having me and uh, really my pleasure. Thank you, Mateo.